I have noticed that with each successive lesson, the smell of barbecue has become stronger. The opening doors a little wider each time. It's like, hurry up, get done. And I did mention that, uh, well, flowers and everything, and my friend John over here I just met a minute ago said that you could go get some of these flowers you want to take some home, but you might end up in trouble if you do that. It has been a great joy to be with you. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of this, and I look forward to getting to know some of you more. If I can ever help you in any way, uh, my email address is on our website at the Jenkins Institute. If you do not, if you're an elder or a minister or just someone very interested and you do not get our emails, we send out various emails, a couple every few minutes, right, Ben? Uh, we send out emails of tools that help those in ministry, those in church leadership, designed to encourage, and uh, they're free, there's no charge to them. If you'll write down your email address um, and hand it to me, I will have, uh, I'll get you added to that list because we'd love to have you on it. And uh, if we can ever help you anyway, please, please do let us know. We'd appreciate it so very much. Yes, sir. That worked well. Write it down, write down your email address and give it to me. You could text me your email address. I can give you that, uh, that number if you want to do that. It's 615-294-1453. 615-294-1453. So if, if you need that, we, again, I'd love to add you to that and, and have you be a part of it. I, I'm kind of interested, in, and uh, Stephen or whoever's going to close up may do this, but uh, I don't know how many different congregations are represented today, but... Uh, Thank you for, for being here today and making the effort to be a part of this. And isn't it nice to be together and to be together as a group of men. Thank you for what you do for the Lord and for your service to Him. And uh, let's go to Hebrews 11 for this last lesson. We, we've kind of been there all day, but we've run back to the stories. We'll run back to a story today, uh, this last session, and we're going to look at a man from Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. It's one of the longer sections devoted to one of the characters mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And I need to say this. I didn't want to say this with the first lesson or the second lesson, but I want to say it here the third lesson. And I'm going to tell you why I didn't say it the first or second lesson. These lessons are not original to me. I've tried to make them my own, but I don't like to plagiarize. I got the original material from Rick Warren, who I don't agree with much of his theology. In fact, there's probably very little of his theology to agree with, but he's really good at writing sermons sometimes, and so I get sermons from him now and then. And so I, I like to tell my sources so that people know them. The reason I didn't tell you the first and second lesson is you would have been looking these sermons up and reading them is to listen to me, and now you're going to listen to the third, so maybe you won't find this one. So we're going to talk today about, about in this last session, about leading. Uh, about leading. We've talked about how to be a leader, how God can use ordinary people to lead. We've talked about how to not be a leader, what do you need to avoid in your life if you're going to be a leader. It's third, we're going to talk about some, some keys to effective leadership. We're going to look at one of the greatest leaders that ever lived. And if you polled, if we, had, if we were a bunch of Jewish men in here and we polled the audience and said, who's the greatest man that ever lived? 
you'd have some that would say David, and you'd have some that would say Abraham, but many of them would say this man. This man is the greatest leader that ever lived. We're talking about doing great things for the Lord. And you can do great things for the Lord that are big and flashy. But great really is not big and flashy. For the Christian, great equals faithful. That's what makes you a great man for the Lord. Psalm 84 verse 10 says, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And my favorite verse in the Bible is 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, where it says, In the great house there are vessels of gold and of bronze, but also of clay. And I often think about that, and I realized years ago, I will never be a vessel of gold. I'll never be the best. But if I get to be a vessel of clay and I get to be in the great house, in the Lord's house, that's what I want. I don't want to be the best known. I don't want to be, I'd love to be better than I am, but I'll never be the greatest. But the Lord will just let me be in His house. Just let me do something. That's the psalmist here. I'd rather be a doorkeeper than to dwell in the house of the tents of the wickedness. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. More was required of His steward that a man be found faithful. We're called to faithfulness. And so whether it's on a big stage or a little place, whether you preach to hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people, or whether it be five or six faithful people. I was interviewing David Leip, who directed the, uh, was over the lectureships at Freed for several years. I was talking to David and I said, all the people you've heard through the years, who do you think is the best? And if you ever met David Leip, you, you, you just got to be careful what you ask him because he's an old country boy from Mississippi. And he got mad when I asked him the question. He said, we talk about who's the greatest and everything. It's probably the greatest preacher, some guy living up in Philadelphia preaching to two or three people every Sunday and just being faithful to God. But greatness is not about numbers. It's about faithfulness. So whether you're called on a stage in front of thousands or tens of thousands of people or whether the stage you have is your family with your wife and your children, be a leader where you are. The man we're going to talk about today was a leader of a nation. You don't have to be a leader of a nation to be great for God. Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 16 led his family. His family was dedicated to the Lord. Addicted to ministry, one text says. I think of the story of Gus Nichols. How many of you have heard of Gus Nichols? All right, most of you, I figure we're close enough to the great state that you've heard of Gus Nichols. So uh, everybody knows Gus Nichols led thousands and thousands of people to the Lord. Uh, for a time, many considered him one of the greatest preachers of, of the, 20th, the 20th century and possibly was humble and awesome. Uh, Brother Nichols was led to the Lord by a man you've probably never heard of. The man that led him to the Lord could neither read nor write. He was a uh, coal mill worker. But he preached meetings. He'd go around and do tent meetings. And one night he was on a tent meeting in Jasper, Alabama, and this young 15, 16-year-old boy came to the audience. He was a Baptist. C.A. Wheeler was the man who was preaching that meeting. 
Brother Wheeler asked the young man, do you lead any songs? He said, I can try. And Brother Gus Nichols, young Gus, got up and led a song. And Brother Wheeler saw something in him and said, would you come back tomorrow night and help me out? I need some help. He wasn't that great a song leader, Brother Nichols would say. Brother Wheeler saw something in him. And he kept inviting him back to lead singing, not because he's a great song leader, but because Brother, Nichols wanted, Brother, Brother Wheeler wanted to teach this young man. The man you've never heard of, C.A. Wheeler, led one of the greatest evangelists to the Lord that we've had in decades and decades and decades. It's not who, who's heard of you. It's your faithfulness. Brother Wheeler would try to be faithful to the Lord. Tonight, or this afternoon, we're looking at Moses, one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. Got the Ten Commandments from God. Wrote the Decalogue, the five books, five first books of the, of the Bible. Went up face to face with Pharaoh, the greatest leader of his day, and stared him down and led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Why did God use him so effectively? What well, started early, Moses answered some basic questions of life, and these will lead to the secrets of an effective life. Ready for them? Number one, be yourself. Moses was a candidate for a personality conflict, an identity crisis. He's born Jewish, raised an Egyptian. Moses had to deal with his identity stuff right off in life. Egyptian baby with Jewish parents condemned to die but instead put in a basket in the Nile, and it happened. It just so happened. I don't think it just so happened, but it just so happened that the daughter of the Pharaoh was taking a bath, and she just so happened to see this little basket, and she just so happened to take this little boy back to the palace and raise him as her own son. And Moses had to ask, answer this question. Who am I? Who am I? It's a quite important question because that question could determine the rest, did determine the rest of his life. If he said, I'm Egyptian, he would have had a life in all likelihood of ease, an outstanding career. People today would pay to see his sarcophagus. Who am I? If he says, I'm Jewish, he'd be kicked out of the palace, sent to live with a bunch of slaves for the rest of his life. Moses sees his people being mistreated as slaves and could not be silent. He could not quell his conscience. He made a decision that would cost him the next 80 years of his life. When Moses made this decision, he was not a kid. He would have been around 40 years old. Verse 24 says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The word in the Greek literally means word refused there literally means rejected, denied, or disowned. Moses cut himself off from a promising career as an Egyptian because he refused to live a lie. As Jesus turns his face toward the cross, John, I think it's 11, it is 11, says knowing who he was and where he had come from. There's something quite liberating about being yourself. The quickest way to an ulcer 
is try to be someone you're not. Identity crisis. Who am I? Number two, verse 25. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time or a season. Notice the word chose there. Literally, he selected, he decided. The second principle is to accept responsibility for your own life. That's a problem, isn't it? Isn't that a problem in our culture? People don't accept responsibility for themselves. They want to be a part of a, a tribe. My tribe's this and my tribe's that. And I do this because of this, not because of who I am. He accepts your responsibility. Blame someone else for your faults. Man, man has spent, since the dawn of time, his life trying to blame others for his own choices. Adam took that piece of fruit. He made that choice. He ate. You make your own choices. You decide. Don't say it's not my fault. Decide to do something about it. Make a choice. In verse 24, we see Moses refusing. And in verse 25, we see Moses choosing. Important principle. The negative is followed by a positive. I love that about God and His Word. That happens often. We have to choose the negative that will turn to the positive. You see, it's an odd thing, isn't it, to see someone baptized? This thing we do called church is an odd thing, isn't it? We come together and we try to make it pretty. We sing and we pray and we praise and we try to make the service be beautiful and wonderful. But why are we doing it? Because we're sinners. Why are we doing it? Why don't we put on programs? Because there are sinners out there. And it's all because of the bad news. And we try to make good out of the bad news. And that's what God does. He takes the bad news and turns it into good. Verse 23, as a baby, God chose Moses. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. edict. God chose Moses as a baby. But verse 25, Moses chose God. He had to choose. God has chosen you. Revelation chapter 22. The Spirit and, bride, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who heareth say, Come, and let him drink, let him as a thirst come. And here's the text. And whosoever will... Let him come and take of the water of life freely. God has chosen every person on earth, the whosoevers. That's us. But have you chosen him? Verse 24, when did he make that choice? Look at the text. When he had grown up, when he was of age. One of the marks of maturity in your life is when you accept responsibility for your life. You stop blaming. You stop passing the buck. You stop... Blaming your parents. It's not your fault, people say. Blame the environment you grew up in. Plenty of excuses. When you were a little baby, your mom held your head in the water in the bathtub too long, and that's why you have irrepressed emotions, and that's why you're raping and pillaging the land. It's not your fault. There are plenty of excuses out there. 
You can't blame someone else. You can't inherit faith. At some point, you've got to choose faith. If you're a Christian because your parents were Christians, then you're not a Christian. You're a Christian because you made a decision to obey Christ, to follow Him. I hear this, people talk about sharing your faith, and I don't get offended by it. But I always think about what I heard my Uncle Dan say about 30 years ago. You can't really share your faith. The other person has to embrace the faith that you have. They embrace the faith of God. They make a decision on their own. You can tell us about your faith. Some people say, you know, my parents were Christians. When I was at Granny White, it was, it was quite humorous to me, sadly humorous to me, that people would come to me and tell me who baptized them, as if God even cares who baptized them. I was baptized by Brother Bassilbert Baxter. I was baptized by Brother Willard Collins. I was baptized by Brother Jim McIntyre. I don't care who baptized you. It doesn't make you any special or different than anybody else. I had a guy come to me one time, and he was distraught. He said, the man that baptized me has come out of the closet. He's a homosexual now. Do I need to be baptized again? Paul couldn't even remember who he baptized. And when I was a kid, I used to think that was irresponsible, that Paul couldn't remember who he baptized. Now that I've been doing this for 40 years, I don't remember who I baptized. And it's going to get worse in the future, I have a feeling, you know, as I get older. But somebody walk up to me, oh, you baptized me. Oh, well, good, I'm glad you were baptized. It doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter. You've got to make a choice. The, fact, the matter of the fact is, ultimately, nobody can ruin your life except you. I don't care what's happened in your life, you can't blame others for it. You have to make a decision. Satan can't. He doesn't have enough power to. God can't. He, God won't. He loves you too much. Ultimately, only you can permanently mess up your life. And only you can permanently choose to change your life. If you want to be effective in life, you have to accept responsibility, like Moses. Moses could have blamed, couldn't he have? He could have blamed his parents. He could have blamed Pharaoh. He could have blamed Egypt. He could have blamed God. But he chose. Number three, if you're going to be effective as a leader, establish a value system for your life. It's a settled issue. What is really important? That's the question. What's really important to me is what Moses did. Verse 26 of our text, Hebrews 11, look at it. He disregarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now I'm going to get ahead of myself here in the text for a minute, but look at that verse. Will you look at that verse? I want to get ahead of myself because I'm afraid I'll forget it later. Does anything seem odd to you about that verse? Anybody? You may not spot it. Thank you, Aubrey. Aubrey says Christ. Moses saw Christ before Christ came on the scene. He made a decision about Christ before Christ was even there. But that's not what I want to notice in the verse. We'll come back to that in a minute if we have time to. He regarded. He regarded. He chose. Literally, he put it in the balance and weighed. Moses did not make this decision lightly. He thought it through. He considered the options. He evaluated the worth of Egypt versus the worth of God's people. He thought it through. And he realized, I'm going to suffer with my people. I'm going to suffer for the rest of my life. But I might be able to do something great with my life. But it's going to involve some suffering. Or I can live a life of ease with riches and wealth and everything and have everything great and wonderful, but my people are going to be suffering. He weighed the options. 
the richest, most powerful empire in the world versus a bunch of slaves. You know why he did it? Christ. He regarded the spiritual matter. And you have to set up a value system for your life. What are your values of life? What values do you base your life on? What things are most important? What will you trade in your life for the most important things in life? Why am I spending my time with this? And it starts in the microcosm of a day. I'm going to exchange 24 hours for these activities. I'm going to do this with this day. And it goes on every day. Every day you make that decision. Am I willing to trade this 24 hours of life for this thing going on in my life? Moses made a decision. He didn't know how it would turn out. He had no idea. He didn't know what God's plan was. The valuation that you do is probably bigger than you know it. The decision you make is probably bigger than you realize. You're charting the rest of your life. For us, it is eternity. The values. What values are out there? Well, there's a value of pleasure. I want to feel good. There's a value of possessions. I want to be wealthy. I want to make a lot of money. There's a value of power. I want to be famous. I want to be well-known. Most of the world are frantically searching for those values. Now notice, if you look at those three things, and you look at Moses, he had it made. He had pleasure, possessions, and power. All three wrapped up in the royalty of Egypt. Walk away from it, live a life as a slave. Here's a lesson from Moses' life that we all need to focus on. When you establish a value system for your life, you have to chew, you have to say no sometimes. This is not the easiest route, but it's the wisest route because of the values I've chosen. Jesus comes along and makes it really clear. No man can serve two masters. He'll hate one and choose the other, or he'll choose one and deny the other. You can't be devoted to both. Moses decided three things. Moses decided that God's purpose was more valuable than popularity. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's pretty good, isn't it? The son of Pharaoh's daughter. Status symbol. Number two in command, in line to be Pharaoh. Somebody said the big man at the pyramids. People known. Trumpets blown and people bow down to him. A hand is raised and servants come up and give him whatever he needs. People coming in and bowing down before him. The kind of popularity that most people would kill for. The aim of their life. But Moses got that popularity contest and he said it doesn't last. And we know that, don't we? You've been on the cover of the Rolling Stone one week and the next week be in the trash can replaced by the latest fad. One of the things I like about Moses is Moses was not impressed with Moses. Moses wanted God's purpose for his life. I'd rather be a slave fulfilling God's purpose than to be the king of Egypt with all the popularity. I want God's purpose, God's plan, not mine. Number two, Moses decided that people are more valuable than possessions. He chose to be mistreated, one translation says, along with the people of God, rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. 
I wonder, given this situation, how we would react. Moses chose pain over pleasure. He chose discomfort over ease. Why? Because people are more valuable than pleasure. Men are making that decision every day in their life, aren't they? People are pleasure. It's easier to go see a prostitute than to work through the problems at home. It's easier to forsake your family with children running around screaming and crying and, and all the bills and the problems and everything to just scrap that all and leave it behind. Most of easy street. A lifestyle of luxury. If you wanted grapes peeled, they'd be peeled. If you wanted them warmed, they'd be warmed. But everyone wanted right then, right now, by a slave that would bring it to them. But Moses hears the cries of his people, those very slaves that would have been serving him. And he said, people are more important than pleasures. Why? Moses chose to do the right thing in his life. Popularity ultimately does not satisfy you. Because you have to go to bed knowing you've made the wrong choices. And don't miss it in the text. I know most of you don't. But don't miss it. There's pleasure in sin. It's nice when somebody says, the life of Christianity is great and wonderful. Given your choice without God, would you go sit in a building on Saturday morning or be at home watching something on television? There's pleasure in sin. You start getting old and some young girl likes you more than, more than she should, and she's a whole lot more pretty than your wife is. Choose pleasure. There's pleasure in sin. You think you can buy with cheating your company a little bit so that you can have a little more money to take home? There's pleasure. There's pleasure in sin. But watch it. It doesn't last for a season. Pleasure, popularity. It only lasts for a period of time, a short time. Sin would not be popular if it was painful. There's no doubt about it, it's pleasurable. Moses said, I'd rather go with the people of God because people are more valuable than pleasure. And God's purpose is more important than popularity. Verse 26, he disregarded disgrace. Or excuse me, he regarded disgrace. He had humility. We'll learn more about that in the New Testament, won't we? For the sake of Christ is greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Somebody wrote it this way. He rejected the world's measure, verse 24, the world's pleasure, verse 25, and the world's treasure, verse 26. The things people spend their life clawing and scraping for, he rejected. Why? Third value. God's peace is more valuable than possessions. There are some things that are more important than things. Somebody says you can't buy happiness. That's not true. You can buy temporary happiness. You can buy a little bit of pleasure for a while, for a short time. I say go out and buy a ski boat, take it on the lake, I'm skiing around. Are you happy? You just bought a little bit of something, made you happy. Having a great time. But what happens? Six months later, you want a bigger boat, right? Isn't that the way it is? You buy a new tech gadget, you love it. By the next Christmas, you want the new one, right? We always want more. 
bought happiness. But it's only temporary happiness. And there's nothing wrong with happiness. Happiness of itself is not sinful. One of the marks of maturity, though, is realizing that happiness is not what we're seeking in life. That happiness is okay. I don't have this weird sadistic idea that some Christians I've been around seem to have that life is better lived miserable. Jesus didn't say, I came that you may have miserable life. He said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. There's nothing wrong with an abundant life. But the mark of maturity, most of you, some of you are, several of you are not old enough to remember the old Sears Roebuck catalog. That thing was a billion pages, wasn't it? And half of it was toys. And we'd get one every year. And Mom would say, pick out what you want. I marked every page. <laughs> I mean, every page. You can, you can pick two things. All right. You know, we, we always want more, don't we? A sign of maturity is when suddenly we realize there's nothing wrong with having something. But that thing is not where my... Life is lived. That thing is not what produces joy in my life. It may produce happiness for three weeks. Pretty soon it's on the shelf in the garage with all the other gadgets. That's why Moses said, I don't want pleasure, I don't want possessions, because they don't last. Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And we spend all our lives trying to, acting as if that is not true. When I went to the Ukraine for the first time, uh, we taught English, 1993. Is that right? I think it was 93. We taught English in little groups. But then to every class, I'd say, do you have any questions? And they'd ask questions. So the second time I went, I asked the guy in charge, I said, how about if we set up a room just for questions? And just after people have their, their English lesson with the Bible, we just let them, invite them to go in that room and just ask anything they want. And I thought, you know, we'd have five or six people. The first day we had 500 people in the room. It was crazy. And I was up there answering questions as a kid, had no clue what I was doing. And what I'd do is I'd start the hour and I'd say, all right, anybody have any questions? And raise their hand, they'd ask questions and my interpreter would interpret it and then they would interpret back what I would say. And there were weird questions, there were fun questions. Some of them were not spiritual questions, but I said, you can ask anything. So one time some guy asked, some lady asked, she said, is it true that in America, your cars have their own house. I said, what? My interpreter said, she wants to know, is it true that in America your cars have their own house? I said, no. Yes. <laughs> is it true that in America your dogs have their own food? No. Yes. We have possessions. We spend our life acting as if Possessions will bring us happiness, that our life does exist in the abundance of the things we possess. Moses comes along and says, I don't want possessions. That doesn't mean you should sell everything you have and live in poverty. Jesus said that to one man. He didn't tell him he had to live in poverty. Wealth itself 
is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. We know that. Why? A lot of God's people were wealthy, some very wealthy. In the Bible, there are extremely wealthy people who are faithful to God, millionaires and even billionaires by our standard. But what made them great? It wasn't their possessions or lack of possessions. It was their values. We love people, not, and we use things. But most folks in our world get that reversed, and they love things and use people. They manipulate them. I've got a friend that works for a large company. The guy who owns it started it when he was young, and it was just he and two or three employees. Now it's this huge company, and he's got a problem. He's always made every decision based on the bottom line. And he came to me not long ago, and he said, I've stepped on people, I've misused people, I've mistreated them, I've not done right. He's not a Christian. He's not a person of faith. We're studying with him. Hope he'll be a Christian someday. If he does become a Christian, the Lord can use his wealth for great things and influence for great things. But he said, I've used people all my life. I've stepped on people. I've always made my decisions about what's best for the company. You realize as a Christian, that's not what we do. We don't make our decision based upon what's best for us, what's best for our business. We make it best on, based on people and God matter of values. Moses said God's peace is greater than possessions. Why did Moses give up the very thing, very three things that most people spend their entire lives working for? It's in the last part of verse 26. Because he was looking for the reward. And the reward was not on this earth. Moses' life in a word is looking. He was looking ahead. He was conscious of what his values were. Moses had the right values and the right vision. And there's the fourth key to effectiveness to be a leader. Never take your eyes off the goal. Never take your eyes off the goal. It says he was looking ahead beyond the here and now. A conscious decision. By faith, verse 27. Vision, a matter of faith. Seeing, a matter of faith. Moses was a man of faith. We are too. I came up with a little phrase I like. It stayed with me. Faith is a noun. That's a noun. Contend for the faith. Acts 6, a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. It's a set of doctrines and values and ideas and beliefs. The faith. But when you add water, baptism becomes a verb. We then live out our faith. Moses lived out his faith. By faith, he left Egypt. Look at it, not fearing the king's wrath. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Moses saw Christ before Christ came to earth. He saw him who was invisible. He never took his eye off the goal. Want to live an effective life? Keep your eye on the goal. There were enormous problems in the purpose that God had for Moses' life. Think about it. We don't know how many Jews there were. I've heard from between 2 million and 10 million. But imagine trying to lead 2 million people who've been slaves out of one country to another country that you've never even been to. 
Imagine the problem with food and water. Imagine trying to get out of the land. Imagine there's a river in front of you, a sea in front of you. How are you going to get across it? There are all sorts of problems. But Moses focused on the goal and not the problems. Here's why. The problems were not Moses' problems, they were God's problem. Moses' problem was making a decision of his values. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to focus on Him. And once we put our focus on God, all the problems become God's problems, not our problems. I'll make a decision for right every time. And God will see me through it one way or another. And that's the decision we make. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're ever discouraged, you need 2 Corinthians 4. Paul lists all his problems, and look what he does. He calls them these light afflictions. Light afflictions. Well, I've had light afflictions in my life. The day our hot water heater went out. That's a light affliction, right? Light affliction. I want to put some new bookshelves upstairs in our loft. They told me it's going to cost $6,000 to put in a few bookshelves. That's a light affliction, okay? Light afflictions. That's not what Paul calls light. Look at Paul's list. Beaten three times, nearly to death. Shipwrecked twice. Received 40 stripes five times. In sick and in prison. Beaten without food, without clothes. Left alone. Middle of the night in the water, in the deep. Light afflictions. How did he do it? Verse 16. Therefore, he says, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We keep going. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles, what an understatement, are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Paul said, I put all the afflictions on one side of the scale and I put eternity on the other. Moses said, I put all of Egypt on one side of the scale and I put God on the other. And guess what wins every single time? And while it may not look as big and grand in our daily decisions that we make, it is for us. Paul says God's purpose for your life is always greater than the problems of your life. Verse 18, therefore we fix our eyes not on what is seen, anything temporary, anything that's seen is temporary, but what is unseen, the long-term goal. For what is seen is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. Paul is saying the things you don't see are actually going to outlast the things you see. I live in a little city, Spring Hill. 30 years ago, there were 1,800 people living there. Today, there are 50,000 people living there. And we have all these new buildings going up. But I used to live in Green Hills in Nashville. And there are all these on Tyne Boulevard, if you've ever been there. There are all these multi-million dollar houses. And about 15 to 20 years ago, they started tearing down those multi-million dollar houses. Million dollar house, tear it down and build a larger house right where it sat. Guess what's going to happen? In a few years, that house is going to be old and they're going to tear it down and build another one. It's temporary. I was in Scotland a few years ago, and a host, Brother Graham over there, said, uh, tomorrow we're going to go to the new part of the city, Edinburgh. So we got over there, and it didn't look real new to me. I said, well, how, when were these houses built? Oh, probably 1600s, 1700s. This is a new part of the city? You know, we don't understand old over here, do we, very well. But everything's going to go away. If it's temporary, if it's, if it's seen, it's temporary. It's going to leave. 
What's real? Souls. God. The values. The text says of Moses, he left Egypt not fearing the king's wrath because he saw him who is invisible. Another key word, five key words that sum up Moses' life. He refused, he chose, he regarded, he saw, he persevered. He endured, verse 27. If you summarize Moses' life in two words, that's really it. He endured. What did he endure? He endured enormous problems. Two million spiritual babies crying for food and griping every day. And he was just doing it for their benefit. He put up with all kinds of complaining and cranks. And people had different ideas and plans. But the thing Moses had to endure most probably was the waiting. Tremendous delays in God's ultimate goal. He's 40 years old. I'm going to deliver God's people. You've got to wait another 40 years. 80 years coming before Moses was allowed to do the thing that he believed his life was designed to do. Could you, wait every, could you wait 80 years every day knowing there's something better coming? That's what Moses did. Can you imagine Moses every day? Lord, it's me again. Yes, Moses. Lord, is it time yet? Can I get this project going you've given me? Lord says, not yet, Moses. But Lord, you don't know. My people are dying. Things aren't getting any better in Egypt. They're getting worse. Come on, God, get on with it. It's not time yet. 14,600 days. Is it time? It's not time yet. Waiting. One of the greatest tests of faith is how long you can wait for an answered prayer. How long can you wait for a goal to be met? Do you give up when it doesn't come immediately? Do you get discouraged when there's a delay? Somebody wrote this, God's delays are not denials. He has an intention of fulfilling every promise He made and He will do it in His time. The difference between maturity and immaturity is understanding the difference in no and not yet. Right? To children, not yet means no. Can I watch this? Not, not yet. They think it means no. Can I get a gift? No, not yet. They think it means no. The question is how long can you wait? You get discouraged and quit praying. You get discouraged and grow unfaithful. Do you lose your enthusiasm? How much does it take to discourage you? Satan will take exactly how much it takes to discourage you and use exactly that amount for the very purpose of discouraging you. All right, let's close this with Hebrews 12, the first couple of verses. An example to do everything that Moses did in not giving up. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I don't know who he's talking about, but I can't help but believe he's talking about those people in chapter, in chapter 11. That's why the therefore is there, I believe. All these great men and women who are people of faith. In light of those people who have gone on and run the race, don't give up. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily besets. There's a refusing. Let us run with perseverance. There's the persevering. The race is marked out before us. There's a purpose. And fix our eyes on Jesus. There's a vision. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before Him endured the cross. Christ did the same thing Moses did. He looked beyond the problem and saw the results. So what kind of leader are you? you need to be yourself. 
You need to accept responsibility for your own choices. You need a value system for life. And you need to never take your eye off the goal. Thank you for listening.